0: Hebrews chapter 12, and we're looking at verse 18 to the end. We're coming to the end of Hebrews. This, the end of this chapter marks the end of the main teaching of the book. And Chapter 13 is a series of closing instructions. And so here, in a sense, is the grand conclusion. It's wonderful, it's inspiring, it's surprising, and it's intensely practical. There are two main points, uh, two main ingredients for living the Christian life. Two vital ingredients that we need to hold in balance for living the Christian life. Our first ingredient is wonder. Wonder. Remember, the people who are receiving this letter, their great focus has been the awesome history of the people of God with its prophets, with its great leaders, Moses and Joshua, uh, and uh, Aaron the high priest, and the temple worship with its wonderful sacrifices and its great feast days. And now they've come to Jesus and they've left behind all of that ritual. And all of that visible and visual theology. And now they're thinking of turning back to it and turning away from Jesus. There had been something majestic about the past, and there is something very plain about the present. And the writer has been contrasting, uh, showing that what they have now is better even if it is unseen, and he's been helping them see it. He's contrasted Jesus with the prophets, Jesus with the angels, Jesus with Moses and Joshua, Jesus with Aaron, the high priest, Jesus with the temple, with the sacrifices. Jesus is better at every turn, and they've got Jesus. Why would you ever turn away from Jesus? And he has one final brilliant contrast. He simplifies everything down to two mountain peaks. Scripture, in some ways, is a story about mountains. Eden seems to have been set on a mountain. We get that glimpse in Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 13 and 14 was described as a holy mountain where God dwelt with man. There and man, then sinned and was cast out of Eden and down the hill. And that's why we have this question repeatedly in the Old Testament who can ascend the hill of the Lord and who can dwell in His presence? And mountains feature heavily there's Sinai, where the commandments are given, there's Jerusalem being set on a mountain, Zion, the place of the temple. Where God dwells amongst his people, yet in holy isolation. There's the Mount of uh, Golgotha, the hill of Calvary on Jerusalem's ridge, where the great sacrifice is offered. There's the Mount of Olives, where Jesus ascended mountains, play a part in the storyline, and the author picks the two key ones. Sinai, which he doesn't name, but that's where he's describing, where God gave the Ten Commandments and entered into covenant with Israel, and Zion, Mount Zion. But he's not thinking so much of the earthly mountain in the Middle East. He's thinking of the heavenly Jerusalem. He draws a contrast. He says in verse 18, you have not come to this mountain. And then in verse 22, but you've come to this mountain. And if you have the new NIV, which is the 2011 NIV, it has the title, The Mountain of Fear and the Mountain of Joy. And that's a helpful uh, summary of this this section or this paragraph. And in part, the author is wanting them to grasp the wonder, the wonder that belongs to them right now. And so we want to, to see this wonder by thinking of these two mountains, first of all, there's the unapproachable mountain of fear, the unapproachable mountain of fear. God had brought the people out of Egypt. The people are strangers to God in many ways. They need to grasp who He is and what He is like. they need to learn especially, particularly about His holiness. And God starts to teach them here in Exodus 19. He tells Moses to tell the people about their immense privilege, that they are God's treasured possession, that He has brought them out of Egypt on eagles' wings, and they are to be for Him a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He says, I'm going to speak to you. And then He tells Moses to tell them to prepare themselves over the next two days. And on the third day, God will come down on the mountain. And he gives very careful instruction, put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Imagine uh, children being told, you're not even to touch the foot of the mountain, the base of the mountain. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. They are to be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on them. In fact, you weren't even to touch the person who touched the mountain. So holy was this mountain. They were to learn about God's holiness. And then on the third day, the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning and a thick cloud over the mountain, a loud trumpet blast, and everyone in the camp, about two million people, tremble, tremble. And Sinai was covered in smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire, we read in Exodus 19. And smoke like from a furnace I rose from it. And the whole mountain trembled violently. Imagine that, children. An earthquake that goes on and on and on and fire and smoke billowing from this great mountain. And the trumpet sound grew louder and louder and the voice of God spoke to Moses. Imagine. Everything about this mountain is saying to the people, no entry, no entry, stand well back, stay clear if a, a senseless animal was to be put to death for even touching the mountain, how much more a rational thinking human being. And the people were so struck by this awesome, terrifying, spectacular sight that they said to Moses, don't, don't, don't let God speak to us. Tell him to speak to you and you pass it on to us. And even Moses, were told here in Hebrews 12, He said, I am trembling with fear. Everything about it is designed to teach the people this lesson that you do not treat God lightly, that He is blazingly holy, terrifyingly holy. He is not a God into whose presence you saunter casually, He is not a God that you take for granted. He is not a God whose presence is a small thing, an everyday thing. And other incidents throughout the Old Testament underline this. Everything about it is designed to teach the people that God is utterly unapproachable in His holiness. Holiness is dangerous to us because we are unholy. The unapproachable mountain of fear. Then, set in contrast to that, secondly, is the approachable, the approachable mountain of joy. But now, verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion, and oh, what a contrast is set out here. And It's not like Mount Sinai that they could touch literally, although they weren't to touch it, but it, it was there, it was physical. This is a spiritual place, an unseen reality, but this is now their experience. This is what was theirs. And instead of a giant no-entry sign across it, it was a, a, a giant welcome sign. Welcome, come in. This is what happens each Lord's Day when they gather to worship, they may be gathered in someone's house in Antioch or Joppa or Jerusalem. But that house has two addresses. Its street name in Joppa or Jerusalem. But it was also located in the city of the living God. Heaven came down to earth, we read. But you have come to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living god and in that little room where they gathered and there was maybe a few of them gathered there and they thought this is nothing like the high holy days when jerusalem was packed the writer says to them if you could but see it the room is packed it's packed with thousands upon thousands of angels and perhaps the people felt well this is a bit shoddy And this isn't as exciting as all the voices of the people of God singing the praises at the temple. And the writer says, ah, but there's thousands of angels and they're celebrating. They're celebrating you being there, belonging to God. They're celebrating the God who saved you. And you might feel like a nobody in this world, but he says, this is the assembly of the firstborn. This is the gathering of, of God's elite children. Every single one of them was one of His firstborn children. And not only are the angels present, there is another presence. They are in the very presence of God. God, the judge. He's still the judge. But because a final sacrifice has been offered, they have been made perfect forever even though they are yet being made holy we were told in chapter 10 they have been forgiven and where that sacrifice has been offered for sin there is now no more sacrifice needed and they're gathered in the presence of God that's what happens every week what a wonder what an amazing thing it was for them to come to their little place of worship and they're there and they're not just with the angels and in the presence of God the judge of all the earth but they're there with the host of the redeemed. All of the believers from the past are there too, worshiping God. Heaven has come down to earth and they're there with their mediator whose blood cries out for mercy. Not like Abel's blood. Abel's blood shed on the ground cried out for vengeance. Vengeance. Punishment. Punishment the blood of Christ sprinkled in the Holy of Holies cries out, mercy, mercy. And this is what happens when they come to worship. It looks so ordinary. The writer says, oh, it's far from ordinary. Stop and wonder at it. Be amazed at it. Heaven has come down to earth. And instead of being at the bottom of the mountain, distant from God, they are on the top of the mountain with God, with His holy angels, with His people. This is what reality is. If they could peel back the, the, the cover, so to speak, and peek into what was really real, that's what they would see. And that's what they need to grasp. And that's what we need to grasp so that we wonder And we delight as we come to worship God together so that that will keep us going, so we will grasp what we've got through Jesus Christ, that through Him a new and living way has been opened up right into the holy of holies, and we get to come into God's presence. And who are we there with? Not only have have we been reconciled to God, but we have been reconciled to all His holy creatures and all His redeemed people. We are all together. And we need to grasp this. And, and here's our application in this first point. We're to grasp that this is what happens each Lord's Day and is happening right now. This is the description of this room this evening. You want somebody? You go home and somebody says to you, well, what's the place like? Describe to me what it was like. Would you, would you dare... Turn to Hebrews 12 and say, Well, we went to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. Well, who was there. Thousands upon thousands of his angels were there. Well, was anybody else there? Oh, the redeemed were there. The judge of all the earth was there. Here, tonight, in this room. This is not something that lies ahead. This is what happens each time we gather. Today, John Hawthorne, whom many of us heard singing loudly in many church services, sang in the presence of the Lamb of God his first Lord's Day in heaven. But actually, It was the same as every other Lord's Day that he worshipped God because the same wonderful host were there, the angels, the presence of God and of the mediator and the redeemed. They were there every Lord's Day. And we gather with John now and with many, many others now. Do you see the wonder of it? Imagine, imagine if you could see it and yet we're to see it with the eyes of faith. We may be gathering in in this building, but this building has two addresses. It's here at Bonagie, but it's in the city of Jerusalem. That's where you come to, children, on the Lord's Day. You come to a place that is part of heaven, where although you can't see it, God is present and His angels are present Our Saviour is present. And we join with Christians all over the globe, and the angels celebrate, and we join with believers who've gone before us, and we join with them, and we worship. And we're in the presence of the Judge of all the earth. And He's smiling. He's our Father. And in His presence is another figure with scarred hands and side and brow. His Son, our Mediator. He's right there in the Holy of Holies, and there is blood sprinkled there. And as we gather each week to worship in the presence of the Judge, the blood of the Son speaks a lovely word. Listen, it says, Forgiven, forgiven, mercy, mercy. And we have nothing to fear from this Judge. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus he says. That's what happens. You don't come to hear me preach or Johnny preach or to be with each other. We come to be part of this great gathering where heaven comes down to earth and how that should encourage us to come with anticipation, to prepare our hearts for worship, to prepare our hearts to hear God. We need to come with a delight, a faith-filled delight, faith-filled delight as we worship and sing and listen and give thanks. Wonder and hunger. Living by faith. Seeing it by faith. Believing by faith. The angels are here in joyful assembly. They're enjoying themselves, seeing God's rescued people gathering week by week, worshipping the Jesus that the angels adore. They love to see it. What a wonder. What a wonder it is to be a Christian. What a wonderful thing it is we do each Lord's day. That's our first word. Wonder. You'd almost expect him to stop there. Surely this is his great climax. But it's not. It's not the full picture. In fact, it would be a dangerously unbalanced picture. For wonder is not enough to keep us going. Wonder, amazement, and delight is not enough to keep us going. And remember, that's what he's wanting to do, to keep these believers going. And so our second word is warning. Warning. If our first word was wonder, and that wonder was delight in God, delight in God's presence, The warning is, fear God in your delight. Fear God in your delight. It's a fascinating finish to the letter. It's very, very wise. If you were looking at this section of chapter 12, it goes like this. Fear. No fear. And then the closing section, still fear. You see that? Sinai, fear. And then... We see ourselves in the presence of God. No fear. And then how does he close? He says, still fear. It's not the same sort of fear. It's a different sort of fear, but it's still a fear nonetheless. And I think if many modern preachers and writers had been writing this, they would have stopped at verse 24. They would say something like, We are not under law. We are not under Sinai. We are under grace and they would paint a wonderful picture of the grace of God, gentle and lowly in His love. And that's true. But it's not the full picture. It's not even the full book of Hebrews. It's only half the book of Hebrews in which we have seen spectacular portraits of our lovely Savior in His tenderness, in His winsomeness, in His gentleness, in His care, in His Ministering to our needs from the throne of grace, able to save to the uttermost. What a saviour we've got. But oh, haven't we heard too some of the most frightening warnings anywhere in the Bible, repeatedly. And we take scissors to our Bibles if we edit them out. These warnings, and this, this paragraph here, or two paragraphs from verse 25 to the end, are here for very practical reasons. You see, God doesn't change. There has not been a change in God between Sinai and Zion. God is still the God of Sinai. He is still blazingly holy. He is, as the writer reminds us, in what is, in a sense, his final concluding word of the letter before he has his his long P.S. at the end. He is a consuming fire. It is still a fearful thing, he warned them, to fall into the hands of the living God. It's not that God was a God of fire and law, and now he's a God of love and grace. It's not that we are all chummy, and now everything goes or anything goes. He's God. He still is a consuming fire. The God of Sinai has not changed. And we lose sight of this at our peril. The New Testament still tells us to fear God. We looked last year at 1 Peter. Peter says, Fear God. Honor the emperor. Two separate commands he has. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Love the brothers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Jesus himself in Matthew 10 says, Do not be afraid of those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. He's speaking to his disciples about faithful living, about not giving up under pressure. And he says, fear, fear God. There is a fear that we no longer need to have because there is now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. But there is a fear that we are to have. And we are to hold these things in balance. We are not to overemphasize grace. For in doing so, we might misread God's forgiveness and God's patience and God's gentleness. When we do that, we treat sin lightly and shallowly as if, well, you know, I sin, but God will forgive. no. We can't treat him like that. We are trampling on his beloved son. He's a consuming fire. We must not distort God's character and treat sin casually. Neither are to overemphasize fear, for that ends up with grim-faced, fearful Christianity. Always doing, never, never convinced that, that God loves them. That's wrong too. That distorts his character. We're to hold both. A right balance of delight and fear, gratitude and awe. And the two go together repeatedly in Scripture. Psalm 2 Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Psalm 130, verse 4 But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Both go together, grasping that he is not safe, but that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. You see the two things? He's a consuming fire, but we can come with confidence. Do you see? And, and fire is such a, a perfect illustration. Don't we teach our children uh, from the earliest days, fire is dangerous. Stay back, stay away. And then later on we can teach them that fire is warm and welcoming and life-giving. Enjoy it. But then what do we need to tell them? Once once they start to learn that fire is warm and welcoming and, and can be enjoyed, we need to remind them again that fire is deadly. Fear it still. And so with God. So with God. And so here's the warning. And the there's two applications here. First of all, there's a word to keep us from turning away. There's a word to keep us from turning away. You see what the writer says? He says, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. Why is that? Does the writer say, well, you would miss out on all of this amazing, wonderful thing. You would miss out on, on the assembly of the, the angels and you would miss out on this forever. He doesn't say it. No, he says no, because he is fearful. There will be no escape. If the children of Israel who heard God speak at Sinai refused him who spoke and were denied entry into the promised land, how much more will those who refuse the one who speaks from heaven, the Son, See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. There's an echo here of the opening verse of chapter 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. Here is a word to keep us from turning away. A word that keeps us from turning towards sin. A word that keeps us from putting our trust in anything in this world. The writer describes them as things that can be shaken. A day will come when the Son will speak again. He will not be speaking like at Sinai where a few things were shaken, but He will speak and everything will be shaken. Everything will be shaken. And you have that picture in Revelation of the stars falling from the heavens, the, the sky disappearing, whipping up like a, a ruler blind, whipping up out of sight. And Christ will be there. The two worlds, one that has been invisible, and the world that has been visible, the world that has been visible, everything in it will seem to turn to ash and nothingness. And all that was valuable will be seen to be dust and clay and dirt and death. And the other world that has been invisible will start to come into focus. And people will go, no, we've lived for the wrong thing. We've lived for things that that can be shaken and fall apart. And he is here and it's too late. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. Don't, don't turn away. Don't let the Don't let the fact of, well, everybody's just getting on with life and there's all sorts of things going on and there doesn't seem to be any sign of God's judgment and there doesn't seem to be any evidence that God disapproves of the wicked. Well, why bother? Why not just go on and live life our way? How do we know this God is is real at all? Don't. Don't mistake God's patience. A voice will come. And it will shake the universe. And anything that we might turn to or put our trust in, our finances, our family, our reputation, our success, our health, these are things that can be shaken. There's no point turning to them, turning to things that would be removed. Here's a word to keep us from turning away. Don't refuse him who speaks. And then there's a word or a warning to keep us going forward. There's a, a word to keep us from turning away and there's a word to keep us going forward. Yes, there's wonder and there's delight. We are, we read, receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It cannot be shaken by time. cannot be shaken by politics or pandemics, death or Satan It cannot be shaken by oppression and persecution. And we are waiting to be invested with this reality. This is not a waste of time. We are about the unshakable realities of life. And what will keep us focused on this? The writer tells us two things. He says gratitude, gratitude and fear. I'm going to call it fear. He calls it reverence and awe, but he he finishes up with, our God is a consuming fire. And we are to have what Peter calls fear God. We are to have what Jesus says, fear Him. We are to have that. We're to have gratitude. Let us worship, or sorry, let us be thankful and so worship God. Filled with thankfulness for what God has done. Remembering who He is. Filled with delight. At the wonder of how we have been forgiven and we can come into the presence of the God of the universe and call him Father. That we have one who sits on the throne and who says, come to me and tell me your problems and I will provide grace and help for you in all your times of need. What a wonderful thing. Worship. Worship, he says. Come with glad hearts and delight in God. And that will fuel your faith. That's what we're to do. And every part of the book of Hebrews that points us to Jesus and that shows us the richness and the wonder of what He's done and what He's achieved for us says, worship Him. Worship Him. See it. See it with the eyes of faith. Be filled with gratitude. Be grateful. Be grateful. And that will keep you going forward. That'll keep you going For That'll help you to, to fix your eye on the joy that's set before you, to endure. He endured the cross, but we have to endure far less. But it'll keep us going. We consider Him so that we do not grow weary and lose heart. That'll help us. But it's not the only thing that we need. And the writer wisely and powerfully brings us back to the blazing holiness of God. He says we're to do this with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Yes, the two things that we're to hold in balance are delight and fear, or gratitude and reverence, whichever way, whatever words we want to give to them, delight and fear, gratitude and reverence. Fear is still part of our response to God. Fearingly delighted, for he is fearsome and delightful. We are fearingly delighted, for he is fearsome and delightful. And, and I, I think perhaps over the years this is something that I've underemphasized. Uh, this note: there is a degree to which those who grew up in the in a Catholic background found themselves often confronted with a thunderous view of God and the fear of God was hammered in to them. And they need to see the tenderness and the gentleness and the grace, the rich, sweet grace of God. Yes, yes, And but we mustn't ever get it out of balance for that does not leave us free to casually sin and think, oh, he's gracious and loving and gentle. And this is the solution that we need because gratitude isn't enough because we are not grateful enough. We don't get it. We don't get how much God has done. We take it for granted. Gratitude isn't enough because we're not holy enough. We footer around with sin. We tinker with temptation thinking, well, you know, God is merciful and patient. It'll be okay. We tolerate sin in ourselves, mistaking God's patience with us for Him being okay with it. And we need to grasp that our God is a consuming fire. We saw Him bringing painful grace into David's life. In First Samuel 30, we saw last week how He disciplines His children. So they grow in godliness and righteousness. We need to be reminded of him who is too holy to tolerate sin. Gratitude isn't enough because our vision isn't clear enough. We see people and we fear people. We lose sight of God. We see physical realities and miss spiritual realities. And it's fear that keeps us safe. It's fear that keeps the electrician safe whenever he remembers that electricity is deadly. My father spoke about a, an electrician who had done some wiring for him at a stage and he had seen how careless the man was and he said, that man needs to be careful. He doesn't treat electricity with respect. We heard some time later that he had been electrocuted and had died. Fear keeps us safe. What will keep us going to the end? It's not only that view of God that we need when we're hurting and down, a view of His tender, gentle care, but we need a view of God when we are sinning and wandering and wavering and toying with temptation. We need to be reminded that He is a consuming fire. What do we need when we're thinking of dialing down our commitment because the pressures of the world are too much? We need to be reminded that we are refusing Him who speaks and that we are in a dangerous place. I need to remember this blazing holiness of God. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 10. He says, Brother will betray brother to death, and father uh, father is child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. He says, so do not be afraid of them. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body and cannot kill the soul. What's the remedy? How do we not fear people? Rather, fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. It is a right fear of God and who he is that safeguards us from our sin and from our weakness and puts courage in our spines. Is that a little bit in The Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe, I think it is, where the children say to some of the animals, about Aslan the lion, who's the, who's the Christ-like figure in the books, is he safe? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. But he's good. He's good. This is vital. Vital for us. Vital for Christian living. So that we don't find ourselves disciplined by our Father in heaven. We don't play with fire. We don't toy with God. Are there sins in our lives that we need to deal with? Unrepentant anger, or jealousy, or pride, or misplaced trust, or dialing down our distinctiveness, trying to sit on the fence, hiding our our distinctiveness, betraying our Saviour. How do we think the Father looks on those who treat His Son's sacrifice so lightly? It's vital for our Christian living that we remember that our God is a consuming fire. And it is vital for our witness. What is it the world needs to see? It needs to see the greatness and solemnity of God. It needs to see that there's a heaven to be gained and a hell to be avoided. It needs a healthy fear of God. And so even how we th- talk about God, how we gather for worship here, how we come How we take part in worship sends a message to people who come in and who are sitting among us that they see these people believe they are in the presence of God. You know, there are some churches and you go in and and people are sitting there with a cup of coffee uh, like they're in a cafe listening to a stand-up comedian. Or they wander in and out like they're at the cinema or they're surfing on their phones. And we might point the finger that we could easily be surfing our phones. We could easily be drifting in our minds. Do you think at Sinai the people were having a chat while God was speaking from the top of the mountain? Do you think they were comparing the prices of this and that and the other? No. They were in the presence of God. And we want as we come to church to so anticipate the presence of God and to long for it that when other people are here that they are left with the impression that we are a people who meet with God. Wonder and fear mixed together a fearful wonder and a, a, a reverence and an awe. That's what should mark us. That's what we need to keep going in the Christian life. A delight in a God who has dealt with our sin and says, come in. And a fearful awareness of His holiness. A fearing delight in the God who says, come in. Amen. Let us stand, if we're able, as we come to God in prayer. Father in heaven, we address you as Father because your Son told us that we could do that. And we grasp that He suffered the blazing holy fury of the triune God, the judge of all the earth, so that we could call you Father, so that we could approach you without fear. And we praise you for him. And we worship you for him. And we worship him for what he's done. And we delight in what he has gained for us. And we, we thank you for your grace and kindness to us. But, O Lord God, help us not to treat lightly the privileges that are ours, these blood-bought privileges, these privileges that cost the very Son of God to cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's so that sin would not be our master, that hell would not be our destiny, and that the path of righteousness would be our path. And yet we toy with sin, we step off the path of righteousness into bypath meadow, and we we treat lightly the blood of the covenant that sanctified us. Forgive us, Lord. Give us a grasp of Your blazing holiness that hates sin so much, so that we will hate sin so much. And yet, Lord, let an awareness of how astonishingly holy you are, magnify to us how utterly wonderful it is to know you as Father, to know the judge of all the earth as our Father. Let the one magnify the other and thrill our hearts all the more so that we are filled with gratitude, so that we tremble with delight and amazement and fear. We ask these things, In Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.